Great. Well, uh, I mentioned that uh, illustration used by Paul Campbell uh, in the Bala Ministers' Conference, uh, and it is an effective story and illustration of, of treasures found in unexpected places. Uh, and he used it uh, in the context of the burning bush. Uh, he was preaching on uh, the glory of God from the book of Exodus. Uh, and he shared, well, where would you expect to see the glory of God? In a burning bush. Uh, it can be applied in all sorts of different ways. Uh, and we've seen it with the children in the context of John chapter 1. But it's also true in John 19. Now, this is a passage that's very, very familiar to you, uh, and you will have heard very many different sermons on it. I want to look at it in a slightly different way today, and to see how there are truths here in unexpected places. Uh, that as you look at these verses, that the truth of Jesus is made known in a way that you would not expect. The truth about Jesus was all, will always be made known. The glory of Jesus cannot be concealed. My favourite story is on Palm Sunday. Uh, the crowds praising Jesus and the Pharisees rebuke uh, Jesus and they rebuke the crowd uh, for praising Jesus in this way. And Jesus, of course, responds, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Wonderful, isn't it? You know, that if people can't worship Jesus, if people won't cry out, that the creation itself, that the stones, the rocks around us will cry out praise and worship. Jesus will be acknowledged as God. He will be acknowledged as the Lord. The truth about him will be revealed. Now, there are expected ways as Christians. We know that God will be um, and Jesus will be revealed uh, in the word of God. Uh, we are told there in Psalm 19 uh, that the whole of creation declare the, the glory of God. All heavens declare his glory. And we expect to see this. We would expect that if there is a creator God, that he has created the world in such a way that you would see his glory in this universe. And this is true. We see the glory of God. We see the glory of uh, the sun in the creation around us. We expect that. We expect to come to the scriptures and to see the glory of Jesus revealed in the Old Testament, uh, concealed to a certain degree, and then certainly then revealed uh, as he becomes flesh in the New Testament. We expect to see the glory of Jesus revealed in the scriptures. He does also speak in unexpected ways, and he does make the truth about Jesus known in unexpected ways. We've been going through Mark's Gospel uh, at uh, Mount Elam. Uh, and what's striking about Mark's Gospel is that the first half of the chapter, you have the Father declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. But the only other beings that testify to the truth about Jesus are the evil spirits. <laughs> they call him the Holy One of Israel. The disciples don't acknowledge it until halfway through. So the truth about Jesus is made known, but in an unexpected way. It's these evil spirits. Even the devil knows who Jesus is. And here in John 19, we see that the truth about Jesus is made known in an unexpected way. That the treasures of Jesus is revealed by the enemies. 
Now, they don't know what they're saying. They're not aware of the truth that they are proclaiming. But in their anger and in their evil, in their sin, in their mockery and scorn, they still speak the truth about Jesus. God will always reveal the truth about Jesus. And we see the sovereignty here of our Father. Uh, that the evil ones uh, who have evil intentions, that the truth is still made known. The enemies of Jesus. Now, there's a collection of enemies uh, in John verses 18 to 20, of course. You have Jewish enemies. You have Gentiles. You have educated and scholarly. You have unsophisticated and crude enemies. You have the Jewish Pharisees. You have the chief priests. Herod, the Jewish king. And then, of course, we have Pilate, uh, the Roman governor. We have the Roman soldiers. So we have all of these different enemies. And they are natural enemies. But they have a common enemy. They have a common foe in the Lord Jesus. And so there is this unholy alliance of the Jews and the Romans. And they come together in order to ultimately crucify the Lord Jesus. We know that they are evil. We know that they have wicked intentions. We know that they have no respect for the Lord Jesus at all. But in their plotting, in their scheming, in their evil words, we find actually that truth is revealed. So consider the soldiers, first of all, in verses 2 to 3 of John 19. Now the king's coronation uh, happened a few weeks ago now. Uh, and the pomp and the ceremony, and you had that situation in the middle of the coronation when he was unrobed, and it was behind a screen, uh, and he was uh, anointed there just with his robe. The opposite happens here. Jesus is given a robe to wear. It's a purple robe. And what we have here at the beginning of John 19 is a mock coronation ceremony, really. Uh, he is placed on a platform. He is placed on a box. And it's as if the soldiers are mocking Israel, mocking Jesus. This is your king. Look at your king. They give him a, a sheet, a cheap purple robe to wear. They put a crown of thorns on his head in verse 2, which should have been excruciating. Twelve-inch nails being squeezed into one's head, piercing his head. And then they place him on a box and they say, Hail the King of the Jews. We are the Romans. We belong to this, uh, this historic, this vast empire. And Israel, this pathetic kingdom with a puppet king and this is your king this is the king of the jews bleeding suffering pathetic looking figure and they all stare at him and then they strike him they're full of disdain they're full of contempt it's a grotesque scene a king they think a weak king of a weak kingdom. It is a pathetic situation from the eyes of the Romans, beaten, flogged, bloodied, and bruised, standing in front of them. 
And yet here is the thing. He really is the king of the Jews. <laughs> they have no idea what they are saying. They are declaring him to be the king of the Jews. And they consider that to be an insult. But they don't realize the significance of that phrase. To be the king of the Jews is to be glorious. You think of the Old Testament prophecies. Genesis 49 verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Thinking of the queen's funeral. Uh, the crown and the scepter were removed from the coffin to remind the world symbolically that in death she's just a person the crown and the scepter are removed the lord jesus is scepter the king of the jews scepter shall not be removed it shall not depart he will have an eternal kingship. He will always wear the crown. He will always have the scepter of power. He will have an eternal throne. You think of the words given to David about his son. The king of the Jews will have an eternal kingdom. The kingdom will endure forever and the throne will be established forever. So the king of the Jews is actually the eternal king. The king of peace. The king of righteousness. He's the one who will be established by God himself for all eternity. Jesus said that my kingdom is not from this world, it's from another world. He is the king of heaven. He is the king of all eternity. He is the glorious king. And so in saying, oh, the king of the Jews, they thought that they were insulting him. But in reality, what they are declaring is that he is the king who will reign forever. The everlasting king, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Bobby Jones is perhaps one of the most significant Welsh literature figures uh, of the 20th century. Uh, he was acknowledged as a, a great, and just by the secular world also, wrote over 100 books uh, in Welsh, a uh, professor of Welsh uh, in Aberystwyth, uh, a great man. Uh, a genius, uh, a spiritual giant also. Uh, and a few years before his death, he was interviewed on Radio Cymru, the Welsh language uh, broadcasting uh, channel. And a young person was interviewing him with no idea of who he was. <laughs> From her perspective, he was just an old doddery man uh, who had a weak voice. Uh, and he could see as the interview was continuing uh, that she was humouring him and patronizing him a little, thinking, well, you know, this elderly man. But as the interview continued and proceeded, the intellect and the humility and the genius of the man shone through. But she had no idea she was dealing with until the conversation developed. Now, these soldiers had no idea who they were dealing with. In saying this is the king of the Jews, they thought that they were insulting him. But as we read and hear that phrase in the light of hundreds of years of prophecies, we see the significance of that. That Jesus is the eternal king who shall endure forever, will establish an everlasting kingdom which will not perish, which shall not be affected by sin, which shall not be corrupted by power, but shall endure forever. 
a glorious, pure kingdom, unlike any kingdom we've seen in this world. And there's another aspect here as well, of course. He is the king of the Jews. And it shows the humility of the king of the Jews. That he's willing to suffer in this way. He is the eternal one. He is the uh, everlasting one. He is the one who will establish a kingdom that will endure. But he's willing to suffer in this way. That he is a humble king. That he is a king who's willing to put aside his majesty. Who's willing to put aside the glory and the praise that is due to him. Who's willing to stand on that box in such a grotesque manner. And to be struck by people he'd been created. He had created. To be mocked. To be spat upon by people he created with his own hands. Without bitterness. Without hostility. It shows something of the humility of Jesus, doesn't it? That this is the king who will establish an everlasting kingdom. And that he's willing to suffer in such a way at the hands of people created by him. The second person is Pilate. Now, Pilate has already interrogated Jesus. His wife, we know, was at a dream about him, uh, that he will, is an innocent man. Uh, and so because of that, he is afraid and he doesn't know what to do. And he comes to the conclusion himself that Jesus has no reason to be condemned. I find no guilt in him, he says in verse 4. And then in verse 6 again, take him yourself, crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. He's interrogated Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. He's seen the life of Jesus. And he knows that there is no guilt in Jesus. He knows that he is not worthy of punishment and so he offers Barabbas instead he hopes that flogging him will appease the Jewish crowd he tries every political trick becomes increasingly afraid of crucifying Jesus he understands that there is something different about him and he declares he hasn't done anything wrong now Pilate was in a tangled mess of his own doing and fear of man ultimately led him to crucify Jesus. But he did declare the truth about Jesus. He did not understand the full extent of Jesus' righteousness. Otherwise, he wouldn't have crucified Jesus. He didn't understand how free of guilt Jesus was. But he said the truth, there is no guilt in him. I remember chatting to a person in Dynamic Rock here. Uh, Dewi, my eldest son, was, um, was a member in Dynamic Rock, the, the, the rock um, climbing um, place here in Clydach for a while. And I remember chatting to one of the staff members there who'd gone to base camp of Everest. And they'd walked for nine or ten days to get to base camp. And uh, this person had seen all sorts of documentaries about Everest, They'd seen photos and videos. They'd studied Everest. But until they actually stood there at base camp, she never understood just how glorious and just how majestic Everest really is. She had an inkling, but then she had to see with her own eyes. Now, Pilate, because of his fear of man, because of the sin of his heart, never truly grasped how holy Jesus is. 
He had an idea that Jesus has no guilt. He had an awareness that he is different. But he had no true understanding of Jesus' holiness. By the grace of God, we can study the scriptures. We can study the gospels. And we can see just how undeserving Jesus was of punishment. For 33 years, every word, every deed, every thought, every action, every plan was perfect and good. When Pilate says there is no guilt in him, he tells the truth. He says the truth. He is not worthy of punishment. He does not deserve to die in this way. But is far more glorious than Pilate ever understood. Just consider that. Jesus and the Father could say about Jesus, this is my son in whom there is no sin, in whom I am well pleased. That's what he was saying then, saying in whom I am well pleased, there is no sin in him. He is perfect, he is righteous, glorious. And he was willing to again to die for us. He lived a perfect life because of his character and having lived the perfect life, he was able to die on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. He did not deserve to die, but he's willing to take on our sin and our guilt and our sin upon himself that we might be forgiven. And then Pilate says something else about Jesus, unwittingly, I believe, uh, but... He declares that Jesus is the king in verses 19 to 22, the king of the Jews. But notice that he does this in three languages. He puts a notice above the head of Jesus on the cross, and it's in three languages. And he does this so that everyone can understand, presumably, and so that all the people who are there in Jerusalem can read and understand. But it's significant, the three languages in the language of the common people in Aramaic. This is the language of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, the local Jewish dialect. For them to be told, he is your king. He's the king of the Jews, we know that. But it's also in Latin, which is the language of politics, the language of government, the rulers and authorities. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the one who is above all politicians. He is the king of all politicians. They need to read that as well in their own language. He is your king. Just because you have an, a, a position in this world doesn't mean that you are the greatest. There is one who is above you. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. It's in Greek, which is the language of the Gentiles, the language of the nations, the language of commerce and business, the language of culture. Jesus said, my kingdom is from another world. He is the king of the world. He is the king of all nations. We see, Pilate did not do this thinkingly. We see the sovereignty of God behind this. In this notice, we are told that Jesus is the king of the Jews he is the king of kings, the king of all politicians, the lord of lords. He is the king of the Gentiles, the king of the worlds, people of all tribes and all nations and all languages. Pilate didn't understand this. He didn't believe it. He was sympathetic, but ultimately the fear of man um, crippled him. 
And I wonder if there is someone here a bit like Pilate. I wonder if there's someone here today who understands that Jesus was holy, who understands that Jesus was different, understands that there is no one else like Jesus, that he is worthy of respect, that he deserves our sympathy at the very least. Perhaps you're aware that he is the king of the world. You might even believe that he is the creator. But do you truly believe this? Are you more concerned about what your friends will say and what a spouse or a child or a parent or a neighbor might say? And because of that, you're being held back. You know that you should trust in Jesus. You know that you should believe in Jesus. You know that you should follow him. But just like Pilate, perhaps there's a fear of others. What would other people say? And because of that, you don't trust. You don't become a Christian. You hold yourself back. There's a warning there for all people who have a measure of understanding of who Jesus is. Don't worry about what other people say. Your concern should be, well, what will God think of me? What will he say about me? And then we have the Jewish leaders Verses 6 to 7. They were not fools. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him, Pilate says. And then the Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. The Pharisees and the chief priests weren't fools. They weren't so blinded by their sin that they couldn't actually hear what Jesus was saying. They understood Jesus' claims. They listened to him for three years. They analyzed his words. And they understood the significance of Jesus saying, the Father and I are one. They understood the significance of Jesus saying, before Abraham, I am. They understood what Jesus was saying when each time he said, I am something, that he was claiming divine authority when he was claiming to have the power to forgive sins, that he was claiming to have divine authority. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. If anyone tells you Jesus never claimed to be God, or the Bible never says that Jesus claimed to be God, then ask us a very simple question. Why was he put on trial? What was the reason the Jewish people were against him? What was the accusation? It was an accusation of blasphemy that he claimed to be of divine nature, that to be one with God. They understood this, but they didn't believe it. The truth is made known here. He has made himself the Son of God. He declared himself to be the Son of God, which is true. God the Father said, this is my Son, my beloved Son. They say the truth about Jesus, but instead of believing in him, and instead of accepting those words, they use those words as a reason to crucify him. They hold those words against him. And again, we have that division. There might be people here today, there might be people in Kledach who know that Jesus is the Son of God. You ask people, who is Jesus? And that is the pet answer. Well, he's, he's the Son of God. But do they truly know what that means? Do they truly believe it? Do you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God with all of the implications that if he is the Son of God, he is holy, that he will be the judge who will have to stand before? 
Do you really believe that he's Emmanuel, God with us, who is worthy of worship and praise? Do you really want to follow him? And so we see the, these Jewish leaders, they understood they refused to believe. So do you see, all of these enemies, they are full of scorn and disdain and contempt. They desire evil for the Lord Jesus. But they acknowledge by the sovereignty of God, truth about him. He is the king of the Jews. They didn't understand it, but he really is the king of the Jews who will establish an everlasting kingdom. He really is the one who's willing to suffer as the king in order to rescue and give life to all who would believe in him. He really is the one who is without guilt. He really is the one who is innocent and righteous, dying for the unrighteous. He really is the king of the Jews, the king of kings, the king of all nations. He really is the son of God. They said truth about Jesus, but they didn't, didn't believe it. And you might say truth about Jesus. But being a Christian is more than just saying truth. It is about trusting in Jesus and loving Jesus and praising Jesus and worshipping him and acknowledging him as the Lord and Saviour and King. And then Jesus speaks. The contrast is striking. Everyone else has had so much to say. The mockery of the soldiers, uh, the interrogation of the leaders. And Jesus is largely silent throughout all of this. The last time he has spoken is the end of chapter 18. And then he speaks. He puts Pilate in his place in verse 15 where he tells him that he has no authority of his own. Sorry, verse 10. Uh, that the authority has been given to him uh, by a higher one. And then he speaks on the cross in verse 26. Just notice the character of Jesus here. We've heard the hostility and the scorn of the Jews and the Romans. And Jesus is full of compassion. Woman, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. He is keeping the Ten Commandments. He's honoring his mother even till the end. And then he speaks again, I thirst. Here is the eternal creator. Here is the king of the world. Here's the one from another place. I thirst. The humility of Jesus. That the one who can hold the oceans in the palm of his hands is thirsty. Hanging there, dying. And then he cries out, it is finished. It is done. Not I am finished, but it is finished. Everything so far has been about the character and identity of Jesus. These words are about the work of Jesus, why he came. Why did the king of the Jews, the king of the world, the son of God appear? Why did he come to this world? That he might die on the cross, that he might take our sins upon himself, that he might die for those who've been given to him, that he might give eternal life to all who would trust in him, that we might be forgiven of our sins once and for all. And on the cross, he knew that the wrath of the Father was poured out upon him. And so he cries out just before his death, it is finished. I have made atonement for the sins of my people. 
I have finished the work that I've been called to do. It is done. All who would believe in me can be forgiven once and for all and be given eternal life. The truth about Jesus crying out on the cross, it is finished. All who believe in me will have eternal life. And so I want to finish with a question. What will you say about Jesus? We've heard the words of the enemies of Jesus. We've heard the words of Jesus at the end. What will you say about Jesus? Do you recognize that he is the king of the Jews who will establish a heavenly everlasting kingdom that will continue forever? Do you believe that he is the son of God who created you, who is worthy of praise and worship? Do you believe that he is the innocent and righteous one who died for a sinner like you? Do you believe that he is your king and your Lord? Do you want to follow him? Do you want to obey him? Do you want to listen to him and praise him? Will you speak about Jesus? Will you tell others about Jesus? Will you tell people about the truth of Jesus because you love him and praise him and worship him? Is Jesus your savior? Is he your Lord? And is he the one you want to tell others about? There is one, isn't there, who spoke, a Roman centurion who cried out, this is the son of God. And I wonder if he heard all of these different things as he observed the scenes on the cross. He heard the mockery. He heard the words. He saw Jesus. He heard the words of Jesus. And his eyes were open to see that Jesus really is the Son of God. I wonder if your eyes have been opened. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you acknowledge he's the Son of God? And will you tell others? Will you tell your friends? Will you tell your neighbors? Will you tell the people of Cladach that he has come to be their savior? Will you make him known as well?